Turn your Bible to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is where we'll be at today. Whether you have a good old traditional paper Bible or it's on your tablet or on your phone or whatever, open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 as we dive into a new series learning how to be confident in troubled times and uncertain times. Let's pray and ask God to speak to us through His Word this morning. Heavenly Father, would You speak to us through the preaching of Your Word? Lord, Your Scripture is alive and it's active. It, it guides our, our heart, our mind, and soul. It is the light to our path and a light and a lamp unto our feet. And, and Lord, Your Word will instruct us. It will encourage us. It will shape us. It, it transforms us. And so, Father, we pray for that work to happen in here this morning. Lord, this morning, I've just been reminded that You use the foolishness of preaching to change hearts and minds. And I pray You do that in this room today. Lord, would You use the preaching and the power of Your Holy Spirit to penetrate our hearts and minds. God, I know nobody is here today by accident. Lord, I firmly believe when we gather that You bring us here. You have brought us here today for this day, for this time, to hear from You. And so, Lord, would You speak to us in this room. We pray for Your Holy Spirit to do a work in each and every person here this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I think you would agree with me that we are living in some very turbulent times right now. You agree with that? We are living in a culture and a world right now where there are some just is very uncertain. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Rather, it is looking at the political unrest. I don't care what side of the coin you fall on when it comes to politics. You turn on the television or go to the internet, start reading articles, and what do you see and what do you hear? Battles and attacks and riots and one person throwing stones at another person. Our political uh, situation in America right now is just a mess and it's ugly. And it creates a lot of uncertainty in us as people. You look at things like bombings that have taken place over the last few years. Here just recently, Paris and, and Brussels, and a few years ago, Boston, and even go back further to 9-11. I think what's happened over the last 10, 12 years since 9-11, this world and the direction it's gone in has just created more and more uncertainty in our minds. Think about medical situations going on. Think about the Zika virus as you hear about that spreading across America and how that makes people concerned and what's happening and should I travel, should I not travel. You hear about things such as ISIS and their senseless bombings and attacks and beheadings and killings and it just continues. You think about the financial instability. Oh, you hear, oh, the stock market's doing a little bit better. Oh, the housing market in Lexington's doing good. But when you start talking people to face-to-face, they're like, man, I'm still underemployed. I still don't have enough income. Or still several are still saying, I'm still unemployed. I haven't been able to find work to be able to take care of my family. There's still a lot of financial instability. And I think these kinds of things, and a list could go on, creates America... Uh, American people creates an America that is troubled and people wondering, what's next? What's going to happen next? Maybe the most volatile situation, and it's been volatile for some years, is the crisis in the Middle East. It continues. This, this tiny little postage stamp, postage stamp of an area could be the flashpoint for international calamity. 
And there has been fightings and battles going in in that area for a long time. And some of the most powerful world leaders have been unable to bring stability to the area where Jesus was born. You stop and think about all the stuff going on in our world, and it creates a lot of fears. Creates a lot of uncertainty. Creates a lot of turmoil. In the old play, Green Pastures, the angel of the Lord returns to heaven after serving the conditions on earth and he reports, Lord, everything nailed down is coming loose. I think that's our world right now. Our foundations are shaken. And what are we supposed to do? That's why I begin in this sermon series today, How to Be Confident in Uncertain Times. We're going to open up our Bibles. And we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapters 3, 4, and 5 over the next few weeks and just walk verse by verse because what we're experiencing today is nothing new. In fact, Solomon wrote, there's nothing new under the sun. Now, it looks different. Maybe what's happened in the mask or the face of it's different. We have technology, so maybe we hear about it more. But there's really nothing new. And so we're going to begin this study to walk through and see what Paul said to the church in Corinth about how to, how to handle this as Christians. As you walk in Christ, how are you supposed to be walking in this world? And this text in 2 Corinthians is directly written to the church. It's written to Christ followers. It's written to people who believe in the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it's great for us to walk through. Now the challenge is, if you're in this room and you're going, I'm not sure about Jesus yet. I have questions about faith. I don't know if I would consider myself a Christian, but you've been coming because you've been investigating things of faith. This is directly written to Christians. Here's the good news for you. If you're in that spot where you're like, I'm still trying to figure this thing out about Jesus. As you walk through this with us, you'll start seeing how Christians are supposed to live, and you'll start seeing, wow, as I walk in Christ, I can have hope, and I can walk through these uncertain times when I learn what it means to walk with Jesus. And so it's a great series for you to be part of if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior. We're going to deal with some words in this series. Words like confident and competent and bold. They're used repeatedly in these three chapters. And we're going to start diving into these words. They remind us that when the world's foundations are crumbling, when everything's falling apart, we have a solid rock to hold on to and His name is Jesus Christ. Thank you. You all are awake second service. First service stared at me. I had to say it again. I'm glad you guys are awake. Open your Bibles and let's look at this together. We're going to look at the first 18 verses of chapter 3. The key verse, I think, in this passage is verse 12 where it says, Therefore, since we have such hope, we are very bold. That word bold actually means confident. We are very bold. And we're going to learn how can we be very bold? How can we be confident in these turbulent times? It's not an entirely easy section of Scripture to understand and we're going to wrestle through. matter of fact, when I started studying, I was like, now hold on a minute, what is going on here? And then with some help and reading and talking to a few people, it started really coming together and really starting to grasp what Paul is trying, trying to say. Look at the first three verses. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters or recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our, 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 our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human 
hearts. What are these verses saying? As we walk through this, we're going to see where we get our confidence from. And first of all, I want you to understand this today, is our confidence comes from trusting Christ, not ourselves for daily strength. That's where our confidence comes from. In the first century, here's what's happening. In the first century, travelers carried what they called letters of recommendation from famous people to give them instant credibility. So if they're traveling from one city to another city or one town to another town, and they're trying to do business exchanges, or they're trying to even go and teach in the universities or go and preach, or whatever it was, they had letters from famous people who would say, yes, this person is who they say they are, and they're credible people to listen to. Today, we have things like credit cards and driver's license and, and degrees we hang on our walls and social security numbers. And so if you go downtown to do some business dealing, you walk down and you take your, you take your uh, driver's license, you take your social security card, they plug that in a computer and boom, everything that they want to know about you, they can start finding out. And that's how we have our credibility. Paul writes, I don't need the endorsement of other people to prove to you that I represent Jesus Christ. He says, your conversion is sufficient enough. It's legitimate enough. My letter of recommendation is your relationship with the Lord. Paul's writing to church in Corinth and saying, you know who I am and I know who you are and my recommendation or what you know of me comes because I poured my life into you. It's kind of like today. Many of you probably don't realize that I have two degrees from Cincinnati Christian University because I hate titles and don't want to promote that. If I was a doctor, which I'm not, I wouldn't even want to be called doctor. I don't like it when people call me Mr. Bolton. I don't like it when people call me Pastor Brian or Pastor Bolton. My name is Brian. And I ask people to call me Brian. Now I understand some parents are teaching their children respect for adults, and so they'll say, that is Mr. Bolton or that's Pastor Bolton. And I receive that, but every time I hear him, I'm like, ah. Some of you have heard me preach for a long time. And you've been, and I've been involved in your life, and you've been involved in my life. And what Paul would be saying today is, listen, you know me, and I know you. We don't need any special recommendations or special privileges or special letters. We know each other because our bond in Jesus Christ. And Paul's bringing that out to them. Paul said, I don't need a letter of endorsement from someone else to show you that I have the mind of Christ. You, your changed lives are proof that the Lord has been at work in my ministry and my preaching. That's what Paul was trying to say. Now he moves on to verse 4 and 5 and says, Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. See, Paul's confidence wasn't in other people's endorsement of his ministry, nor was it in himself. His confidence was in what God was doing through him. That's what he was relying upon. The world teaches us and teaches you that our, we gain confidence by putting our trust in ourselves. I see we hear a lot today about the importance of building up your self-esteem. Build up your child's self-esteem. Don't crush your child's self-esteem. You'll hear things like believe in yourself, believe your instincts. You can do anything if you set your mind to it. You can cope with anything. Matter of fact, the most popular program when my children were preschoolers was a show by the name of Blue Clu Blue's Clues. I think there's still a lot of reruns out there. He dethroned Mr. Rogers. And I don't know who the popular one now is who's teaching preschoolers on video, but Steve and Blue Clues used to sing a song that said, if we use our minds and take a step at a time, we can do anything that we want to do. 
On the outside, that sounds great. You want your children to be reasonable and self-confident. You want them to dream and believe in their potential. But I want to tell you something. Your children are not able to do whatever they want to do. It's just not true. And some of you are going, oh, man, preacher, how can you dare say that? My kids are in here. I tell them that all the time. Let me give you an example. If Shaquille O'Neal's mom said, Shaquille, I think one day you're going to ride that horse and win the Kentucky Derby. You know that wasn't going to happen. He is seven foot two, 350 pounds. He would break the back of that poor horse. And likewise, if Pat Day's dad told him one time, Pat, I can see it in you, son. You're only four foot nine, 100 pounds, soaking wet, but you'll be dunking in basketball. I know NBA's in your future. It wasn't going to happen. And so sometimes we tell our children some stuff like that. There's a Christian song that says, I can be anything that God wants me to be. That's the truth. There's a big difference. There's a, there are some difficult challenges that we cannot resolve on our own regardless of how much we put trust in ourselves. For instance, when your health breaks and it's crashing down because you've got news that's terrifying from the doctors. When your older children start to rebel and you're like, I didn't raise you that way. I didn't raise you to live that way. And they say, Mom and Dad, I know you raised me one way, but I'm doing it this way and doing it my own. Sometimes it's out of your control and you can't do anything about it. When your mate has an affair and announces, marriage is over. And you're like, wait a minute, I want to hold on to it. You may not be able to do anything about it. It may be totally out of your control. When your stock folds, when your company collapses, when your infant baby dies... Maybe out of your hands. And the only thing you can do is look to trust God. When the building that you're in is bombed, or when you hear again of another shooter going off, some of these things are just out of our control. and We can't do anything about them. All the self-confidence in the world is not going to be sufficient. All the confidence in your country will not suffice. Your source of strength had better be in something more than just yourself when these things happen. It's only in Jesus. See, the Christian can be confident in uncertain times because they put their trust in Jesus Christ. In these uncertain times, we can be confident, we can be bold because we put our trust in Jesus Christ. King David wrote in Psalm 27, he said, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. David understand what it, ta- what it was like to walk through tough times, to go through hardship. And what's he saying? He said, I put my trust... I put my hope, I put everything into the Lord's hands. Imagine for a moment a 10-year-old boy starts school and the first week he's, as he goes to the bus stop, there's a 12-year-old boy who's a little bit bigger, a little bit stronger, a little bit tougher, who starts bullying him around. Day one, maybe the child deals with it. Day two, it gets harder. Day three, it's almost impossible. By the end of the week, he's telling mom and dad, I'm not going to the bus stop because Johnny keeps on bullying me. How does that situation change when Johnny's dad, who is six foot five, 250 pounds, walks to the bus stop with him? I don't think 12-year-old Johnny is going to do any more bullying 
things probably calmed down quite a bit. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 4, he said, At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be glory forever and ever. To trust in Christ and not in yourself takes humility because you have to swallow your pride and admit that maybe you're inadequate. See, the Christian life has many paradoxes, many things that swim upstream, many things that go against what the culture teaches us. The Christian life, we have to die in order to live. That doesn't make sense to this world. We have to give in order to receive. We have to lose self in order to find self. We have to surrender in order to experience victory. It's not what our culture teaches. And here's another paradox. We humble ourselves to be exalted. We admit that we're inadequate in order to be confident. So when we get to the point that we say, Lord, I can't cope with the stress of today. We get to the point and say, Lord, I'm not sure about tomorrow morning. Lord, I don't know how I'm going to handle this marriage. Lord, I don't know how to take care of my child or my daughter. Lord, I don't know how to face this health uncertainty. And you say, Lord, you walk by my side. Lord, I'll grab your hand and we'll do this together. We put that kind of trust in Him. Then we can walk in this world in uncertain times with confidence. Paul wrote, I can do everything God asks me to with the help of Christ who gives me strength and power. Paul was talking about going through some difficult times, talking about some of the challenges he faced. He said, the only reason I did it, the only way to do it is because I walked in confidence, trusting in Christ. The Christian is one who humbly depends on God for daily, minute by minute, hour by hour, strength. Where do we get our confidence? We trust in Christ." not ourselves. Secondly, I want you to see our confidence comes from relying on grace, not law for eternal salvation. Look what Paul says in verse 6. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Get that? A a new covenant. Not Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Jerry Seinfeld said he saw a list of man's greatest fears, and the fear of death was listed as third. Do you know what number one was? Public speaking. You're right. Whoever said that? Fear of public speaking was number one. Seinfeld says, I don't believe that. If that's true, that means that at the average funeral, most people would rather be the corpse than the person giving the eulogy. (laughs) I don't know if I agree with that either. I believe it's true because the fear of death deep down is a number one fear of many people. Billy Graham discussed his relationship with the presidents and stated that that he probably spent more time with President Lyndon Johnson, the other president, because Johnson was terrified of dying. He wasn't sure about the future. Hebrews 2.15 says people are held in slavery by their fear of death. I mean, it entraps you, it imprisons you. The world perceives that when we die, that God will judge us by law. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, stop the average person on the street. And trust me, as a preacher, I've asked this question before. If you look at someone in the eye, and if you were bold enough to ask them and said, if you die tonight, do you believe you'll go to heaven? You know what kind of response you'll probably get? Most people will say, well, I hope so. I hope I've been good enough. That means I'm operating underneath law. That means I'm operating under a thing and an idea that I do enough good, God will see that. Or if my good outweighs my bad. Some of you maybe had this thought when I was a child. I remember thinking 
remember having the thought that God is keeping score up there, and he had this big old huge chalkboard. And on top of it, my name, Brian Bolton, in two columns. He failed, he did good. The good and the bad. And on the bad side, he lied to his mom today. He used some foul language today. He lost his temper today. He cheated on the test today. He cheated again on that test today. <laughs> and then on the good side, oh, he helped out the senior neighbor. He did this. He did that. And you hope that the good outweighs the bad. Now, today God has some kind of app to do that, right? And he has super-duper finger thumbs. <laughs> no, probably his voice text never messes up, so he just pulls it up. Brian Bolton. Good, this, bad, that. Good, this, bad, that. That's what, you know, today, if you believe in the law leading, law living way, you think, well, if I've done good enough. Here's the problem with that. Where is the cutoff line? Where's the cutoff line to know, well, I've done too much bad or I've done enough good? Does anybody here watch Biggest Loser? You guys are all scared. Oh, I can't admit that I watched it. Kind of, I watched The Biggest Loser. I love it. All right? On that show, people have to lose weight, then they weigh in every single week, and then it's a percentage of weight loss. And then what they do is they move along and down the thing. You have to stay above the red line. And as long as you're above the red line, you're good. You get to move on to the next week. But if you're below the red line... You're kicked out of the gym. You're off the island, so to speak. That's how our mentality is. We live under law. Where's the red line? If you're going to live under law that, well, I hope I've been good enough. I hope my good outweighs my bad. Well, where's the bottom line to that? Paul says we're living underneath the new covenant. And look what he says in verses 7 through 11. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? What Paul's doing here is he's referencing back and bringing their mind to the ministry that took place under the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. For instance, he's saying, look at the Old Covenant Moses received by going up on Mount Sinai. But the New Covenant was delivered by Jesus on Mount Calvary. The Old Covenant brought a fading glory, but the New Covenant is an increasing glory. In other words, he's saying Moses' covenant faded with time. The glory of the Christ, though, increases with time. He says the Old Covenant demanded rigid perfection. The New Covenant is based on the perfection of Christ. The Old Covenant brought condemnation and death because no one could keep it. The New Covenant brings forgiveness and righteousness. Forgiveness through the blood of Christ and righteousness through the freedom and the Spirit. Paul's trying to bring all this out to the Corinth Christians. The Old Covenant relied on our works where the New Covenant is on God's grace. See, we can walk in confidence when we understand that we rely upon the grace of God. Leighton Ford, evangelist and brother-in-law to Billy Graham, used to tell about a man, a story, who died and stood before the gatekeeper in heaven He'd say, go up to the gatekeeper of heaven. The gatekeeper would say, well, welcome to the gate of heaven. You just need a thousand points to get in. He says, what good things have you done on earth? And a man would stand there for a few moments and start to scratch his head. And the guy would say, well, I was a Boy Scout. I was a good student. 
I went to Sunday school every single Sunday, and a gatekeeper would look down and say, well, very good. That's two points. You need 998 more points. The guy would gulp and say, well, I was faithful to my wife for 45 years of marriage. I gave generously to benevolence and helped people that were in need. I tried to be honest in my business, and I taught my kids uh, to love people and people of integrity. A gatekeeper said, well, that's really good. That's two more points. You need 996 more points. 996 more points. The guy starts thinking, well, what else could I have done? He said, well, I obeyed all the traffic laws. And he said, I never tore the mattress tags off the mattress. And he's listing everything you could come up with. Gatekeeper says, well, that's two more points. You need 994 more points. And as Leighton tells the story, the man of desperation is saying, man, I can't think of anything else, anything else I've ever done. I guess I'll just have to throw myself on the mercy of God. And the gatekeeper says, good, welcome into heaven because that's worth 994 points. Now, the trouble with that illustration is this, is you can't wait until the day you die. You can't wait till the day you die to throw yourself on the mercy of God and say, God, I want to be underneath your grace. I want to live underneath that, that new covenant. You have to do that now. And when you do that now, then His grace saves you. Ephesians 2.8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's a gift of God, so that no one can boast. That's a free gift. That's our salvation. In other words, we can't do enough good. That takes humility because we don't deserve it and we haven't earned it. It takes humility to come to the point to say, I can't be good enough. It takes humility to go, I'm not going to be perfect. It takes humility to say, I don't have enough money to pay for it. Bob Russell shares a story about him and his wife, Bob Russell, a retired preacher of Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, shares a story about him and his wife traveling about 20, 25 years ago. They were up in Pennsylvania. They were in a tragic auto accident, and his wife ended up in a hospital in a small town in Pennsylvania. And he shared the stories and says, that we were in this hospital for a week, and for a week of dealing with a small hospital and all my wife's injuries, he said, I was getting very frustrated. So he called back to some of his leaders at his church at Southeast and said, we got to do something. Can we get my wife back to Louisville, Kentucky, where the hospitals are better and we have the best staff in that area? And so the elders, one of the men, found a way to pay for a plane and flew a medical plane to Pennsylvania, picked up his wife and flew her back to Louisville. As Bob tells the story, he said he was on the plane, he was talking to the gentleman, his name was Russ, and he said, Russ, I want to pay for this medical plane. And he said, don't worry about it. Bob said, I felt like a moocher. I felt like I was mooching off of somebody else. And Russ said, no, no, you're not, not a moocher. He said, I don't want you to absorb the cost of this plane. I want to pay for it for you. I, I have it covered. And Bob said, he asked the question, he said, well, how much was it? How much is it to rent the plane? He said, don't worry about it. You can't afford it. Can't afford it. Come out later, Bob said, I, I realized how much and learned how much the plane cost to, to fly it here. And he said, he was right. He said, there's no way I could afford it. He said, the only thing I could do is humbly receive it and say thank you. You can't afford to pay for your sin and neither can I. There's no way we have enough money, enough time, enough energy, enough good works to pay for it because our sin is too filthy. You can't earn your salvation. It was paid in full by the perfect blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, the one who was qualified to bring you and I healing. We're spiritual moochers, so to speak. So we are. 
And all we can do is live in the gratitude of the cross and say thank you. Verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Why can we be bold? Why can we be confident? It's because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And we can live in this world with that mindset. We get our confidence, one, by trusting in Christ, not self. Two, by relying on His grace, not law for eternal salvation. And three, our confidence comes from concentrating our character, not reputations for personal fulfillment. Too much in our world, we try to focus on our reputation, on our outside. Paul uses Moses as the example. He says, we are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. See, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, if you recall the event in the Old Testament, he went up the mountain, spent time with God, and he then brings down the Ten Commandments. He comes down, he is shining and glowing so brightly that people can't look at them. Basically, they had to squint or had to kind of hide their face. And so Moses puts a veil over his face to hide the brightness of that. Here's what happened, though. Over time, Moses' brightness was fading. And Paul's explaining it. It's fading away. But Moses doesn't take the veil off. He leaves the veil on. Because in his mind, he's thinking, who's going to want to follow a leader whose outside appearance is fading away? And at one time, I was shining with the bright life of Christ, but now it's all fading away. So he leaves the veil on. And Moses' concern about his outward reputation, will they continue to follow me if my outward appearance is not so glowing and so shining? See, the world's confidence, many times, is based upon what people think of you. And too much times, it's what they think of you and they're looking on the outside. You can be self-assured if you look good and make the right impressions on people, you'll probably make your way through this world for a while. Matter of fact, our society values the young and the beautiful and the vibrant. They value you staying looking young. That's why plastic surgery is soaring in this world, in the medical field, because people say, how can I keep the wrinkles away and keep looking young? People Magazine, October 2013, listed Meg Ryan as an actress whose star is fading. If you know, she's had quite a career, but she was on top for several years, but now her popularity was diminishing because why? She's getting too old. In every field, when you get to a certain age and your look starts to change, your glory starts to fade, so to speak. You may not have as much influence. It may be hard to find a job. If you're single, it may be harder to find a mate. Your glory tends to be decreasing. The world's glory fades away with age. It's all going to change. That's why we work so hard to preserve a youthful appearance. And those are called masks, just like Moses leaving the veil on. And as you age, you know it starts to change. I was having a conversation with someone outside this morning. I said, how have you been doing? He said, you know, I've just noticed as I get older, it just takes longer to heal. And my ankle does this. And I was like, man, I feel that. My back hurts here or whatever. You start noticing those things. Second Corinthians, Paul says, but their minds were made dull for this For to this day, the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. Paul's making a comparison between, again, the Old and New Covenant. If people rely on obedience of the Old Testament moral code, there's still a veil that prevents from them seeing the love and the forgiveness and the grace of God. And Paul's encouraging the church in Corinth, take off the veils. Take off the outer appearance. Allow the heart to be exposed. Verse 16 and 17, he says, But whenever, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. 
Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Paul's telling the church in Corinth, and these words ring true to us today, when you take off the outward appearance and say it's not about the outward appearance, it's about a heart transformation. When we come to Christ, we can see that the Gospel is true, and what is on the inside matters way more than what's on the outside. That requires some humility. It requires that, that we have to admit that we're not capable of discovering God's truth on our own. We need Him to work on our character for Him to transform and for Him to shape us. In a million years, we would have never been able to come up with the idea that the Creator would come to earth as a baby, live a perfect life, die an atoning death, and then conquer the grave. We would have never come to that idea. But when we humbly come to the Lord, and accept that by faith the veil is taken away. We see more clearly, and we wonder then, why can't others see? Because the veil is still over their eyes. They can't see. There is freedom from fear of aging and death, freedom from being so obsessed with what people think. And Paul says, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. Lord, who is the Spirit? Paul says when we strip down all the stuff that's blocking us, all the stuff that's in the way, take down all the veil, Jesus will transform us. Only Jesus changes lives from within. He's the only one that will transform us. The change begins when you submit your life to Christ. You receive His grace and forgiveness. You submit to Him and receive, receive Christ in baptism. When you surrender in that, that's when this starts to happen in your life. That change continues then over a period of time. As you grow older, you're transformed. Second Peter says, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and a goodness knowledge and a knowledge self-control and a self-control perseverance and a perseverance godliness and a godliness brotherly kindness and a brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The older you get in Christian life, the more attractive you should become on the inside. You ever been around someone who's walked with Christ for a long time? And when you're around them, you feel like you're in the presence of God? On the outside, you may look at them and go, man, their hair is all disheveled, their skin is messed up, they just maybe look weak and frail on the outside. But when you're in their presence, you're like, this person has walked a long time with Christ. And you feel like you're in the presence of God. I've had some of those visits, especially in hospital. See, outwardly, we are wasting away, but inwardly... We're being renewed day by day. And Paul's saying it's not about how you look on the outside. You want to walk in confidence, focus in on who you are on the inside with the power of Christ changing your life. Let Him shape your character. That takes humility because you become transparent. You aren't so concerned about your reputation. You're more concerned about your character. You're more concerned about you being authentic. You don't wear a veil anymore. You don't pretend anymore. You admit some of your, your faults and some of that your glory is fading away. Your prayer life, you may say, it's not always fantastic. I have a struggle with this. I have a struggle with that. But God continues to work on me. When you get honest with God, the character gets shaped, confidence comes. Sometimes the opposite is true. You let the glory shine and you don't hide it. You don't pretend to be less spiritual than you are. That's character. To say, I'm a work in progress. God is working on me. There are times you'll be tempted to put a veil over your face. To hide the fact that you have shortcomings. To hide the fact that you've messed up. To hide the fact that maybe you've hit some bumps in a row. But a humble person is one who is more concerned with God's evaluation of them than human opinion. Stop and say, God, who am I? 
God, where are my shortcomings? God, where do I need to improve? God, how can I do better? See, you're more concerned about your character than your reputation. Someone suggested that humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. John Ortberg wrote in one of his books, he said, we like to be humble, but what if no one notices? You stop and think about that for a moment. Many times we have a hard time with humility. Jesus summarized, I think, humility in John 15, 5. We talked about it last week when He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in Me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from Me, you can do nothing. That's humility, that I remain in Christ. See, the more you humble yourself, the more confident you become because your strength for the stress of every day is not in you, but it's in Christ. And so you can wake up Monday morning and say, in Christ, I can face this day. In Christ, I can deal with this difficulty. In Christ, I can face this medical challenge. In Christ, I can walk through the journey that may be a year or two years or three years or ten years of challenges. In Christ, we can be humble and choose that mindset. He never fails. He never fails. Your hope for life after death is not in your works, but in God's grace. I'd say that's dependable. That's something we can trust in. Your self-satisfaction is found not in your reputation that fades, but in your character that deepens with the passing of time. And that's why along with Paul, when Paul writes and says, therefore, since we have such hope, we are very bold. That's how we can say we can be bold. We can be confident in this world when we put our trust in Christ for strength. We rely upon His grace for our salvation. And we concentrate on our character in Christ, not our reputation for personal fulfillment. I want to challenge you, church, to live in this passage of Scripture. And each week we're going to do this as we look at 2 Corinthians 3, 4, and 5. If you take out your growth guide, I encourage you to use these. And there's a place to take some sermon notes and then the questions for personal reflection and some quiet time. And then you take the growth guide with you to your growth group. You say, I'm not in a growth group. By all means, you can use your connection card and say, help me connect to one. Or you can sign up online. Or, or email online will help you connect. But on the back of that is an exercise that ties back to what we did in the transformed journey. I want to encourage you to take this passage of 2 Corinthians 3, 1-18 through and read it every day this week. Say, well, I'm not sure if I do it every day. Put it part of your quiet time, your time with God. Maybe before you go to bed, get up in the morning. Just spend time just reading it and asking God these questions. They go right back to our devotionals that we had in Transform. What did you hear? You read the passage. God, what am I supposed to hear from this? God, what do you want me to get out of this? What do you think? All right, God, I'm hearing you on that. Now, God, what, what do you want me to think about that? And then what will I do? God, because of this passage and what I understand of it, what do you want me to do? And then you spend time praying about it. Take the growth guide with you and some of those thoughts, and then hopefully in your growth group you'll spend some time discussing that. But there is, there is power in living in a passage on a regular basis. I think sometimes we just move on too fast. Sometimes we do Bible reading uh, programs, and, and they can be great, but sometimes there's just great power. Say, I'm going to read that passage today. I want to read that passage tomorrow. I want to read that passage for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten days in a row, just asking God, speak to me through this passage. God, help me to hear from you in this passage. God, help me to live out this passage. Because when we understand 2 Corinthians 3, 4, and 5, and the uncertain times that we are in today, we'll be able to walk in this world in hope. Church, Put your faith and your trust in Jesus in these uncertain times. Don't put it in the government. Kids, don't put your faith and hope all in just your parents because your parents are going to mess up. 
they're going to fall short. Don't put your hope in our financial world. Don't put your hope in the stock market. Don't put your hope in your education. Don't put your hope in anything but Jesus Christ and Him alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, speak to us in this room right now. Thank You for Your Scripture. Search our hearts today.